Welcome to the VML Voice, the official podcast of the Virginia Municipal League. I'm your host, Rob Bullington. This episode is the second part of our story about Petersburg. In part one, we explored how Petersburg nearly went off the rails when it faced financial ruin just a few short years ago. We heard from Mayor Samuel Parham, City Manager Aretha Farrell Benavides, Deputy City Manager Lionel Lyons, and Economic Development Manager Clay Hamner. We'll hear from all of them here in part two, plus a couple more folks as we learn what lies ahead for Petersburg now that it's back on track. Before we get started, after part one aired, it was brought to my attention that I had neglected to include the state's role in turning things around for Petersburg back in 2016. I'm going to take just a minute here to correct that omission. It's not like there was a municipal ATM Petersburg could visit to get the money to pay the Robert Bob Group consultants and the others who helped guide it out of the morass. Of course, even if such an ATM existed, I'm pretty sure in 2016 it would have eaten Petersburg's card and displayed account overdrawn. So, let me now give credit where credit is due. To help me set the record straight about the state's role in saving Petersburg, I decided to call Neil Minx, VML's financial policy guy. Neil was a longtime member of the Senate Finance Committee's legislative staff, so I figured he might know a thing or two about this. Besides, Neil and I are really good friends, and I know he always enjoys our chats. Just a, a second here while, while I dial the phone. I've been meaning to upgrade my phone, but yeah, who has the time? Virginia Municipal League. Neil, it's Rob. Hey, I'm, I'm working on the second part of the Petersburg podcast, and I, I need some backstory on how the state helped the city recover. Can I ask you some questions? Who is this? It's Rob, Neil. We work together. Look, man, I'm busy. It's General Assembly time. Bye. Neil? You there? Neil? Maybe something went wrong with his phone. You've got mail. Uh, I've got an email from Neil. So, Neil sent me everything I needed to know, including a link to a Richmond Times-Dispatch article from August 2016. Here's what Neil wrote. Don't ever call me again. (laughs) He's got such a great sense of humor. I always skip over that part. Okay, here we go. Everything you need to know for your podcast, so you won't bother me anymore. It's a catchy title. The revenue challenges that eventually led Petersburg to the financial precipice began as manufacturing jobs disappeared and then accelerated as the Great Recessions descended. The city found itself relying increasingly on cash reserves as revenue streams dried up. And finally, the cash reserves evaporated. By March of 2016, soon after current mayor Sam Parham was elected to council, it was obvious to the city and her citizens that the status quo was unsustainable. In June 2016, Interim City Manager Durana Moore Belton asked the Office of Governor Terry McAuliffe to help determine and catalog the city's obligations and liabilities and identify the historical causes and structural problems that led to Petersburg's budget crisis. The key person for the state was Richard Brown, now retired, who was the Secretary of Finance at the time. He organized a task force of auditors headed by Chesterfield County's former Deputy County Administrator, Cheryl D. Bailey. Another key player, Martha Mavredes, was the auditor of public accounts. Her people had to sort the record-keeping and procedural mess at Petersburg's treasurer's office and at the city's finance office. 
The task force identified all the city's financial problems and basically constructed from scratch an audit of the city's finances going back to 2012. Secretary Brown and the task force were also instrumental in managing the bond challenges faced by the city. Admittedly, the state had an interest in making sure Petersburg stayed solvent. If it had defaulted on certain bonds that involved surrounding localities on joint projects like Appomattox River Water Authority, the financial crisis would have spread to others. The state did not want to be on the hook for assuming the city's debts and operating deficits, but the Commonwealth did step up to pay for the outside expertise the city would need to survive the financial crisis. This budget language was the basis for the state appropriation that paid for the Robert Bob Group to consult with Petersburg specifically, and to direct the Virginia Auditor of Public Accounts to develop a process to test the fiscal soundness of all Virginia's cities and counties. The General Assembly also adopted an idea from Senator Hanger to form a joint subcommittee on local government fiscal stress to better understand the struggle local governments face to remain financially sustainable. Well, that's it from Neil. I must remember to call Neil later to thank him and and to remind him to get his phone checked out. So, while Part 1 may have made it sound like the members of council, the mayor, and the new city manager solved all of Petersburg's problems, they had a lot of help. It took the concerted efforts of both the city's new leadership and the state's technical and financial resources to get Petersburg back on track so it could arrive at its present situation full of good news. Now, as promised, let's dig into some of that good news and get some perspective from our participants. I'd like to start by getting back to my conversation with Mayor Parham, a lifelong Petersburg resident with a long family history in the area. I asked Mayor Parham what the city was like in the early 1980s before things started to go downhill. We were a big tobacco manufacturer, and we had Titmus Optical, and you know, and at those times, it was it it, it was the peak of what Petersburg was. We we had great performance schools, we had great revenue coming in the door, and then um, when when all of that changed in the um, the um, late 80s and 90s, and 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 that's and that sec- sector disappeared. You can't keep a um, you can't have a strong city without manufacturing, and uh, that's something that that we know and we definitely don't take it lightly. And um, as a council, um, council's number one priority has been economic development and and bringing manufacturing back to um, our city because that's the cornerstone of any strong community is manufacturing. So I'm happy to have, hey, made in Petersburg coming back. Just coming across my inbox in the last 24 hours, there's been some incredibly positive news coming out of Petersburg. I mean, I saw the governor's announcement about uh, – um, Civica, the pharmaceutical manufacturer, and I'm just going to run through some numbers here, will invest $124.5 million to establish a new facility, and that's going to create nearly new, nearly 200 new jobs in the city. And then at the same time, I also saw uh, an investment by, uh, maybe flew under the radar a little bit for some folks, but an investment by an outside group in Commonwealth Medical Park there in Petersburg. Can you give us just like the quick take on what they mean for Petersburg at this moment? Um, um, it's, 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 it's a huge, huge uh, hit for the city of Petersburg, talking to my dad yesterday with the good news of Civica, he says, wow, if only I was 25 years younger, um, <laughs> uh, I would be be able to be a part of that. And um, it's, it's quite humbling because uh, Petersburg has been known for its manufacturing. And, um, you know, we lost a lot of that in, in the 80s and 90s. 
And um, I'm just excited of being part of the team to help uh, build Petersburg to a strong manufacturing. Manufacturing? That sounds like something the Deputy City Manager for Development might know a thing or two about. Let's check back in with Deputy City Manager Lionel Lyons to find out how this deal with Civica came together. That is something that came to us in a very, very short period of time in May or so of last year. And just throwing all of our resources and everything that we have, we have been able to work collaboratively with the with the state and other private partners to get some traction that probably people would have never thought uh, would have been uh, favorable for Petersburg. But with the team that we had and with the commitment that we've had to, to do what we can to move this in the right direction, it's, it's a very good day. It's a happy day for Petersburg. The bigger piece of it is, is showing people that Petersburg really is ready for business. And in spite of the challenges that we have had, we know that these 186 uh, jobs that is supposedly associated with this whole process is a step in the right direction. And it gives us an opportunity not only to do a great job here, but to use this as a building block for us to say to people that in spite of what you heard, uh, Petersburg is open for business and uh, we are putting together the right resources. And our leadership team uh, from our mayor and city council and others, they have been at the table with the manager and others and helping us to to move our projects forward. And I think we are we're clear headed in the right direction. Speaking of moving, one of our participants has done some moving since part one of this episode aired. I'm speaking, of course, of Petersburg's now former city manager, Aretha Farrell Benavides, who on February 19th departed her position in Petersburg to become city manager of Duncanville, Texas. This is something of a homecoming for Mrs. Benavides, who had served as city manager of Glen Heights, Texas, for two years before coming to Petersburg. Uh, Knowing of her imminent departure and prior experience when we originally spoke, I wanted to know what she thought of it all. You've had experience being a manager in two different states now. I'd be interested to hear what stays the same no matter where you are doing that job, and what did you find to be a a, a big difference in coming to Virginia? Well, one of the things that a lot of folks don't realize is that uh, Virginia and Texas function under different uh, structures. You have Dillon Law here, and you have Home Rule in Texas. Texas, you get to make any decision you want that the state says you can't make. In Virginia, you can only make decisions that the state tells you you can make. And so that's a big change, and that's a big challenge in understanding. The other part is we have in Virginia, which are things called strong cities, uh, independent cities. So I have both a city and a county function underneath me here, all of which really give you a broad array of responsibilities. Now, I also worked previously in Prince George's County, Maryland, which was a very combination of city-county functions as well as Los Alamos. But the one thing that stays firm is you've got to know where the money's coming from and where the money's going. It all starts with money. No matter how you strong fiscal management with policies and procedures in line are the most important things. You cannot do city services without the revenue, Uh, to afford those things. And so if you start with the money, all the rest will follow because you're able to invest in things. Money helps economic development because it improves your schools. It improves your road. It improves the things that makes companies want to come to your community. And that's how you make more money. And so and then it comes to the last thing is the people. 
you know, we call it we call ourselves public servants and our job is to serve the people and be there for the people. And in order to do that, we have to be aware of the fact that the people are number one for us. They are the ones who uh, look at what we do. They're the ones who benefit from what we do. And they're the ones who suffer if we don't make good decisions. And so that's something that I think is really critical to keep up front for all of us. And, and, and you start with that in mind. You start that everything you do impacts someone. And when you start with that in mind, with that passion and that compassion that comes with it, it makes a big difference. So you'll notice that city manager Pharrell Benavides was talking about how important money is to making local governments able to do things for their residents. But then she spoke about the people those projects are intended to benefit and the need for compassion in all we do. That got me to thinking about fairness and equity and all the really essential issues many local leaders are working to address now. I was fortunate to have among my group someone with a bit of experience in that area. Deputy City Manager Lyons had served as Phoenix, Arizona's Director of Equal Opportunity for a time, and as part of that work, he had earned a City Manager's Excellence Award in 2011. I wanted his perspective. If you don't mind, I'll bring up that City Manager's Excellence Award uh, you got there back in Phoenix. Um, According to what I was looking at, you received that award for serving as the facilitator for the 2010 City of Phoenix Community Engagement and Outreach Task Force. And I'm quoting here, this initiative brought 45 community and business leaders together after a significant police and citizen incident, resulting in a 32-point action plan to improve relationships between the police department and the community. Now, it's no secret that that very same issue is is at the forefront uh, these days. There's lots of pieces of legislation before the General Assembly right now that tie directly into sort of reimagining that relationship between law enforcement and citizens, and also environmental justice um, is a big topic related to that as well. I'd, I'd really like to know your thoughts, um, given your experience um, with what what's being considered now and, and what that might mean for Petersburg in the next year or two. You know, I, I think a part of it is when I look back at that experience, um, that experience grew out of an unprecedented situation where a fire had taken place in a community and the city council member who lived in the community came out uh, to check on a neighbor and and it abruptly turned into a uh, unfortunate situation between an officer and the city council person that led into a conversation that had been taking place throughout the community about the lack of trust of citizens as it relates to police, which proliferated into a bigger issue in terms of what do we need to do in the, in the context of the word community engagement? How is it that we uh, work closely with law enforcement to assure that the community in general feels comfortable of being able to engage with them without feeling as if uh, things would go sour in a very, very short period of time? That led to the development of this group uh, from the city manager and trying to make sure that this issue didn't proliferate into some of the things that we've seen that has happened more recently in our country. But also in bringing them to the table and bringing the community groups, the faith-based organizations and others, to be a part of the conversation about 
what do we need to do? What do we need to do in terms of working collaboratively together and not pitting one against the other? And then also trying to think about the legacy, not just of the community, but the legacy of our leaders in terms of making things a bit better than where they were. Uh, some of that became the issue of uh, community police training. It had a lot to do with uh, neighborhood outreach. It had to do with uh, more focus on diversity within organizations. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, police departments became and has become over a period of time more um, developed under the military model. And so as a result of that, the issue of uh, communication and, and, and tearing down some of the bridges, uh, when, when I say tearing down some of the bridges, some bridges that were built where it was a us and a them, but trying to build a different bridge of collaboration. And I think, quite frankly, uh, in my place in Phoenix, it was just emblematic of some of the things that we ultimately uh, were able to see here. But at the end of the day, we came out of that with some very, very solid re uh, recommendations that included some training, some conversations that ultimately that organization would probably sit back and say they were very, very proud of, in spite of the fact that that whole incident was brought to the table in something that could have turned out to be a lot more negative in that process. If you don't mind me asking, does does what you see the the different ideas being considered now, and the specific legislation and and whatnot, does it give you hope? Yeah, you know what, I I really do. I think that in spite of things, as as long as people are talking, and as long as individuals are engaging, and as you know, the most difficult thing, as I start to think about the issue of uh, law enforcement and community engagement, always takes me back to the conversation about race. Uh, if people are willing to sit down and respect individual differences, the issue is, you know, it, it's a hot topic. Most people don't want to talk about it because everybody's got a different perspective. And the reality of it is just because someone has a different perspective than the perspective that you have, it doesn't make them wrong. And so I think the reality of it is, is, is bringing people to the table, finding the right opportunities for individuals to to agree to disagree, but try to find some degree of common ground, and uh, and then you can make steps incremental, make positive steps incrementally, and it you know we won't see a, a a huge change overnight, but incremental steps are really steps in the right direction. Thank you for sharing that, and I really appreciate you uh, you joining today. Well, thank you very much because, you know, as a part of some of your questions, you made me think of some things that I haven't, you know, when you're in Petersburg, and, and this is really has, has been, you talked about long hours. We have put in, you know, a tremendous amount of hours to be here and uh, and to get us to where we are. And, and unfortunately, sometimes I have not had much chance to even sit back and reflect on the Phoenix experience because, uh, from the time that I came here to work with this team, it's been just straight boots on the ground and trying to stay focused on the day-to-day -day challenges of moving Petersburg in the direction that we all hope to see it going. So with new businesses coming and its finances stabilized and prospering, Petersburg is certainly poised to grow. But ironically, Petersburg has an incredibly valuable asset that could be threatened by too much growth, a large number of historic buildings and areas of downtown. This is why so many movies and shows have been filmed in Petersburg over the years. To learn more, I checked in with economic development manager Clay Hamner. So there's this delicate balance that occurs, right? So you have a, a city like Petersburg that has a lot of historic buildings 
that have you know survived a lot. And at the same time, I mean, in order for the city to to prosper and for people to want to be there, there has to be jobs and there has to be you know growth that isn't just tourism related. Correct. Do you feel that Petersburg is on a good track to maintain that balance? And is there a story to be told there about how a, a city can do both at the same time? There is, and I think HPF is one of the right foundations that can mediate this. The The city has to zone things the way that it zones them. And then when you get these private foundations that come in and help preserve the history, that will help movies and Hollywood and, and these TV shows that keep coming back to Petersburg stay in focus and, and, and keep the city on this path of where it looks like it's from the 1700s and the 1800s. And yet on the perimeters where these new companies are coming, they're building new facilities. They're going to be high tech, but they're not going into the old town location. So the balance should be able to be maintained. I've seen a a few things uh, online about Petersburg being, you know, this really well-kept secret. Do you think you're, you're putting a monkey wrench into that whole notion? Well, with the governor's announcements of Ampac fine chemicals, flow and Civica coming to Petersburg. We want publicity and and we want good publicity. This is a lot of tax revenue that that'll be coming back. And as the mayor probably mentioned, when the BI plant closed back in 2016, that was about $3 million worth of revenue to the city that was gone. So now those types of revenues are coming back and property in Petersburg is probably going to be very, very affordable for the next couple of years. Well, as someone who lives in a city that definitely does not have an affordable real estate market, I'm intrigued. Is Petersburg one of those places where in 10 years people will be saying, if only I'd bought property there when it was affordable, I'd be rich? Certainly, there are areas of Richmond that not too long ago were undesirable and cheap, and now nobody with an honest job can afford to buy so much as a storage shed there. So to learn more, I checked in with Bill Harstock, who is not only involved with the historic Petersburg Foundation, that's the HPF you heard Clay mention a minute ago, he's, well, I'll let him tell you himself. Um, I am a uh, real estate agent um, specializing in historic properties, and uh, Petersburg has been kind of a magnet for people who are interested in uh, really good architecture, historic properties, um, uh, low cost of living. And uh, been very successful over the last 20 some years in in real estate uh, transactions down there, uh, as well as having restored a house uh, in Mullen Hill myself and um, getting ready to start another one in the historic district around Poplar Lawn. So it's uh, it's a labor of love for me as much as anything else. And then I was on the board of Historic Petersburg 20 about 20 years ago and have recycled back onto it again uh, in the last three years and uh, am the real estate committee chairman. And so we're, uh, we're actively involved in trying to uh, acquire properties, turn them over to folks who can restore them and bring the, bring the neighborhoods back basically. And now I want to hear a little bit more about the house that you you've restored, but before I, before we jump into that, just there seems to be sort of this wonderful nexus of things in Petersburg happening, particularly with, you know, all the, the historic homes that, that are available or that people are renovating, combined with some recent economic good news. I mean, as a real estate agent or as somebody with 
a history in real estate in Petersburg. Um, would you consider this the beginning of a new era for real estate in Petersburg, or is this something that's been going on for a long time? Well, you know, Petersburg is is kind of kind of an interesting um, animal. It's up and down. Uh, Fifteen years ago, we had a real resurgence in uh, people who were interested in in buying properties down there and restoring them. And then, of course, the recession hit, and then everything kind of died. Uh, now we're seeing another resurgence, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Richmond has gotten so expensive and has gotten so um, tight on, on the real estate market that people are, are looking beyond um, what what immediate area of, of Richmond has to offer. And I tell my clients all the time that if you draw, if you live in Petersburg, especially in the downtown historic districts, and you have an office in Richmond, it takes you no less time and no less distance than if you lived in Short Pump mm. to get to work. And the traffic is not bad, and um, plus, plus the fact the cost of living in Petersburg is so reasonable, and the and the uh, the the availability of, of of historic properties to restore or that have been restored is just amazing. It really is, and I've been very fortunate in the last I guess the last six months to have a tremendous increase in sales. It's been. Uh, it's been very gratifying to see all the properties that are being picked up and a lot of them under restoration right now. Yeah. And, um, so tell me a little bit about the house that you've, you've restored. And, and that you um, I, I bought a house down in Walnut Hill, which is the, is one of the little suburbs of, of Petersburg, uh, which actually is getting ready to go into historic, uh, district status. And, uh, most of the houses there were built between 1900 and 1930, uh, but they're large. They're they're beautiful little houses that are very similar to things you see in in the near west end of Richmond or on, on Monument Avenue, actually. And uh, so I I bought one that was a former mayor's house and restored that one. Uh, and it was about a thirty two hundred square foot house, um, large large lot, uh, very good area, and it's. Uh, it's uh, it's part of the resurgence of that area now too. From the research I've been doing online, um, there's I mean there's just no shortage of these amazing large historical homes. When I say large, I mean some as large as up to seven thousand square feet. Right. That mm-hmm. um, that individuals uh, such as yourself um, are are purchasing and renovating, and I'd be interested to hear how does the city work maybe through its historic zoning ordinance or whatnot to to first of all ensure that the historic integrity of these structures is maintained even under private ownership and second is there a, a method or a program that allows the public to to view these homes in some fashion given their historic value the city has been very very good as far as promoting historic renovations and and, and preservation in the city uh, primarily through the architectural review board uh, which is part of economic development and they uh they administer the historic district designations uh, for the city. And what happens is if you buy a historic property or a property in the historic district, you are under the uh, watchful eye, I would say, of the architectural review board. And anything you do to the house must be approved by the city. 
uh, and and meet the guidelines of not only the city preservation guidelines, but also the uh, Department of Interior guidelines as far as what you can do to the property. Uh, we as, as Historic Petersburg Foundation uh, do have easements on 160 plus properties within the city, uh, which um, makes them um, under our control as far as what happens on the exteriors of the buildings. And we have to be we have to approve anything that any homeowner would do. And we're pretty flexible. I mean, it's we're, we're not hardcore preservation geeks. Um, we're promoting the city and, that, and that's the key to it. And we, we try to help these people as much as possible to do the right thing with with all the historic properties. So people can leave their hardcore preservation geeks bumper stickers off their cars when they move. Yeah, to yes, they can. They sure can. It's you know we we we're 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 great to work with. Uh, we we promote uh, preservation and and we actually get down in our hands and knees and actually help them out and do some of these things. When we're allowed to start doing everything we used to do again, what what's something that Historic Petersburg Foundation does that you're looking forward to getting back to being able to do? We have uh, already instituted walking tours of the historic districts and uh, meeting homeowners and and having folks uh, just walk around and look at things from the outside. Uh, This is COVID safe. Um, We used to do uh, uh, holiday house tours. Last year, we did a dependency tour uh, in uh, the High Street area that would allow people to look at the Buildings in the back, the ones that were kitchens or ones that were servants' quarters or ones that were auxiliary buildings of some sort. Uh, once again, outside, and um, we're going to continue that. We have uh, many more walking tours coming up in April uh, once the weather breaks, and uh, we're going to continue that operation. And as soon as we see that it's safe to, to really continue the, the house tours, which I'm thinking will be toward the end of the year, I think that's going to be when we're going to start up again on those. Well, you've got my interest, and I now know who to talk to if I need a seven thousand square foot fixer upper twenty minutes down the road. Well, I've got I've got, I've got some of those if you <laughs> Okay. While everyone Googles homes for sale in Petersburg, Virginia, I want to check in one more time with Mayor Parham. And just so you know, when you ask the kind of question you're about to hear me ask of a mayor, don't expect them to be at a loss for words. One last question, easy one. As a lifelong resident, as a native of Petersburg, what do you love most about your city? And if if somebody came from another country and said, show me Petersburg, where would you take them? Um, Where I would take them first would be down to um, our old town area, which is like no no other. You cannot see that anywhere else but in Petersburg. It's, it's, it's a very eclectic place and, and, and it has an energy about it and uh, that is very warming and it gives people something to see that, that uh, they've never seen before. And um, having uh, the things like the Trapezium Brewery to um, the Croker Spot to uh, Buttermilk Bakery to Saucy's Barbecue, we have everything, anything that your taste buds want to, um, to be uh, enthused by. And uh, and 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 it always starts there because I always believe, hey, if if, if you have good food, you people gonna come for good food, and that's something we have. We are foodie town in Petersburg. We uh, really welcome everybody to come and 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 stroll through. We have a nice stroll district down there that you can walk around and 
see the the architecture and read a lot of the history of uh, of of the background of, of what Petersburg has always been. Well, we've reached the end of this episode, and now we know more about where Petersburg has been, where it is, and where a lot of folks think it's headed. I want to thank my participants, Sam Parham, Aretha Farrell Benavides, Lionel Lyons, Clay Hamner, Bill Harstock, and especially Neil Minx. The VML Voice is sponsored by Virginia Housing and Dominion Energy. We'll be back soon with another episode in which we explore a different locality or issue with a focus always on Virginia and the local governments that make the Commonwealth work for everyone. And now, to conclude, here is this episode's VML Voice of Reason. If you start with the money, all the rest will follow because you're able to invest in things. That's how you make more money.